Wow, that's some sound. They'd know you were coming when they heard that. Most certainly. You didn't need two tones in those days. A bell was quite sufficient. And <laughs> this is the original machine. Yes, Paddy, this is the actual machine that your grandfather drove to Belfast on the night of the Blitz. There are some unanswered questions about the firemen who travelled north across the border to help Belfast during the Second World War. They came from Dublin, Dunleary, Drogheda and Dundalk. My grandfather, Patrick Rooney, was one of them. He drove the Dundalk fire engine and that's always been part of our family history. But the total number is a mystery and no one knows all their names. So this is a journey through Grenda's story and the stories of all the hidden heroes who came to help the people of Belfast. People like Rita Brown. She was just 19 when the Nazi bombers attacked. The night that Belfast was blitzed, Delia Murphy was singing in the Ulster Hall and I was there. Delia came on and she sang. There were three lovely lassies in Banyan and I can remember that. That was a the one that everybody wanted to hear and I was delighted with this. We were cheering and shouting and yelling for her to keep on singing and all of a sudden we could hear the early sirens going and uh, she still sang on. There are three lovely lassies in Banyan, Banyan. And the next thing we heard the bombs falling. Then the word came in people who had got out had been killed when they got out of the hall so the Ulster Hall, the people there closed the doors and they wouldn't allow any more out then the screaming started, the people who wanted out, they were crying and wanting out and all, but they wouldn't let them because this word had come back we still stood listening to Delia, she kept panicked down she really had control of the crowd I would say she saved a lot of lives I would say she saved a lot of lives that night. But if there hadn't been somebody like her to take control, I think they would have rushed the doors and wanted to get out. And We knew the bombs were falling and all, but she had something there that she was making us all feel happy and singing, and it was absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So I think it was the next morning. But it seemed to me such a long time that she was singing and we were singing with her, and then the early sirens went and we were able to go home. And it was only then that we saw the awfulness of it, because when we came out, it was a terrible sight, and all you could hear was fire brigades and uh, ambulances taking away the dead, some of the dead, glass everywhere and bricks and, you know, all this sort of thing. And that was whenever you realised the awfulness of what it was and, and what some people had come through and what we were saved from what we were saved from. The awfulness spewed from a fleet of 180 German aircraft on the night of Easter Tuesday, the 15th of April, 1941. Darkness vanished in a deluge of several thousand incendiary bombs and 200 tonnes of high explosives. Nearly a 1,000 people were killed, half the city's houses were damaged and 100,000 people were left homeless. I remember my mother looking out and saying... I remember Lord Haw Haw saying he would leave the Anton Road like a ploughed field. And so it was, there was mud all over the place. And there was a big tree trunk through our, one of our windows. 
Quite straight through. The Antrim Road, of the course, Antrim is Road. one of the main thoroughfares heading north out of Belfast. I'm on the Antrim Road at the moment with Dr Sean Gibson, who's a retired GP, and he's been showing me the house where he and his family lived at the time of the Blitz. That's a large four-storey terrace house just across the street there. It used to be the middle one of seven, and it's now the last of four. Because there were... There were three other houses there, on the, the other side. The, the, I think it was incendiary bombs hit them and they were completely destroyed. But yours survived. Oh, thanks be to God, yes. And none of us were hurt. But you were in the house oh, as I the were, bombs were falling. Oh, I were in the kitchen to the table, we called. Onto the table. My mother and one of my sisters was under the stairs. Because my mother, we stout bombs, she'd never get onto the table. <laughs> and, uh, God, it really shook her rigid. You were 14 at the time? Yeah. Did you hear anything about the firemen coming from the south? Oh, to I, help out oh in I, all, we all were told that many, many years afterwards. I always thought they just came from Dundalk. I didn't realise that they came from Dundalk, as you told me, and from Dublin. I, I didn't and Dunleary. And Dunleary, I didn't realise that at all. Brave men. And they certainly were, and I hope to God it was appreciated, because it's certainly, the fire, the fire brigade was certainly needed and very badly needed. This was happening only 20 years after Ireland was divided. But in the face of tragedy, the border meant nothing, and ancient Catholic-Protestant bitterness evaporated, as I heard from Eileen Johnson. She's 94 now. She spent much of the war in a factory making military uniforms, and when the Blitz began, she was going home on a train after a day out. I was really scared because she did not know whether that train was going to get a direct hit or not. So when you got off the train, were the bombs still coming down? Yes, when I got off the train, Belfast was still being bombed very, very heavily. And how did you get home? I had to walk home. I walked, but I ran home because then I was younger, was able to run. Through the bombs? So, yes, yeah. You just watched, and when there was a lull, you just carried on another wee bit. You see, just seen, literally seen the buildings collapsing in front of you. It was really scary. Did you know people who were killed or injured? Yes, my friend in work was killed. She lived in Sandy Row. A little girl by the name Doreen Harper, she was beautiful. And there was a slab of concrete went down through the roof in her house and cut her two legs off. Yes, it was very sad. The fire brigade here was very very badly stretched during the big The fabricated men, instead of working 12 hours, I think sometimes they worked up to 36, 48 hours without a break. They had no other option. They couldn't go away and leave a building burning. But then they don't get any recognition for what they do. Did you know that firemen came up from the south to help yes, on the night of the bomb? I read it in the papers. And it was interesting because my parents had come here to live from the south. So they had that in common with those men coming up. They gave their all. They didn't let us use their ports. They didn't let the Navy use the ports to refuel or anything. But they helped in other ways. Do you think that people living in Unionist or Protestant areas would have minded firemen coming from the I think if your house is on fire, love, you don't stop and ask a fireman, is he a Protestant or is he a Catholic? I think that, no, I wouldn't. Personally, I did. There's only one heaven and one hell. And everyone was glad to see them. Everybody was glad and accepted them with open arms. There was never any recognition for them. 
and I just think it's sad. They had given their all. Big honey pears are now four for a pound. St George's Variety Market in the city centre is a huge Victorian glass-roofed building attracting thousands of visitors every week. But in his book, The Blitz, Belfast in the War Years, the historian Brian Barton says it was a very different place 70 years ago. St George's Market, in effect, became a morgue. The Northern Ireland government had assumed that there'd be no more than maybe 200 bodies, 200 dead. In fact, the Easter Tuesday raid caused perhaps 760 or 770 deaths. Within the hours of the raid was the decision to use public swimming pools as temporary morgues. And in the course of the 16th of April, bodies were taken to Falls Road Baths and to Peter Hill Baths. Then the decision was taken that the bodies that were unidentified should be transferred to St George's Market and they lay there for the three days from the 18th to the 20th of April. 255 bodies were eventually transferred here and of those something like 90 were, were identified in due course and the others were then given a public funeral on the 21st of April. That must have been a horrific sight here in the market. I think it was absolutely horrendous. The market was central and well known and in that sense it was an ideal location perhaps but also it was ill-suited, ill-suited because it was quite exposed. There were rodents, the bodies couldn't be left uncovered, there were no adequate washing facilities and also in the haste of the blitz and the lack of preparation and the chaos generated by it, bodies had been taken, no one knew where they'd been taken from or very few of them and also their clothes had been removed and therefore there were great difficulties in terms of identification. Do we know how many people in total were killed? Home office figures are 770 people were killed in the Easter Tuesday raid. But it could have been more. It almost certainly was more. I mean, the number of bodies were never recovered, etc. And also the figure of 770 doesn't include military deaths, and there were 17,000 British troops in the Belfast area at the time of the raid. You said Belfast wasn't well prepared for the Blitz. No, it wasn't well prepared. The minister responsible, J.C. McDermott, said that Belfast was less well protected than any other major port or city in the United Kingdom. You could go through everything, really, from, for example, the number of anti-aircraft guns. It had 16 heavy guns, 22 in all. Cities like Liverpool had five times that number. Birmingham had four times that number. Uh, If you take public shelters, there were enough shelters in Belfast, 750, to accommodate a quarter of the population if they were fully utilised. And those shelters which were available were poorly constructed, certainly the ones that were built initially, because they had these very heavy concrete solid roofs, and if the walls were affected by blast damage, then the roof, this large concrete roof, cascaded down without anything to block it onto the occupants of the shelter. But did that happen? It happened on several occasions at Atlantic Avenue in Percy Street, uh, at Ravenscroft Avenue. There are a number of examples of where that occurred. That carnage was part of the terrible horror facing Granda and the other firemen when they reached Belfast. But there were safer shelters. Hundreds of people found refuge in the crypt at the Redemptorist Clonard Monastery near the Falls Road in West Belfast. Father Phil Dunley showed me the Order's Community Chronicles. I've marked here already some of the 
entries of the Chronicles for 1941, all about the, the big raids. The raid took place on this night, lasting some hours. The attack was on the docks. We went to the cellar. Big damage was done by the bombs and a great conflagration could be observed from the monastery windows. And then further down here, on the night of the big blitz, a big-scale air raid on Belfast lasting several hours. The din of the bursting of the heavy bombs was terrific and shook the house. This time the raid was general. Great damage was done by fire bombs to business and residential areas. Crumlin Road, Antrim Road, York Road, seemed all on fire. And then on the next page, the crypt under the sanctuary, also the cellar under the working sacristy, has been fitted out and is open to the people, women and children only, as an area shelter. This act of ours has been much appreciated by all, Protestants included. Prayers are said, hymns are sung by the occupants during the bombing. So everybody, including Protestants, gathered in the crypt of the church. That's right. Those would have been Protestants coming from the Shankill Road, I presume, which is not very far away. Yes, we can see it. Actually, it's only maybe 100 yards. uh, The peace line is only 100 yards outside our window. In fact, uh, I've heard it said that actually some of the Catholic volunteers of that time used to travel over to the Shankill Road to bring women and children over here. So that they could shelter so they could shelter in the crypt. In the crypt yes. Is the crypt still open? The crypt is still open, yes. Is it possible to see it? It is, yes, it is. Yes, I can bring you there, certainly. At the rear of the church, we're going down a flight of steps, and ahead of us there's a large gate. And hopefully this key... Oh, there it is. And that gives us access to the crypt itself. So here we are, a fairly damp floor... And this is where people sheltered. This is where sheltered. sheltered. So there would have been room, I'm sure, for a good could be 100 to 200 people 200 down 200 here. people, I would say, yes. Does it go right around no, the no, back of the no, end? No, it's there? just a rectangular area. That's the end. Was one area designated for Catholics and one for Protestants, <laughs> I'm wondering? That I don't know. But they say that they did section off all right. Protestants and Catholics, I've heard that all right. But uh, the story says, though, that they got to know and became very friendly after a while. Well, in a confined space like this, you'd have no option but to get to know your neighbour. Oh, surely. I'm sure they prayed together and sang hymns together. I'm sure they did. I can't but help think about the days of the catacombs. Exactly. It's the same situation almost, really, it is. This is like a catacomb, really. Catacombs in Rome are a place where people took shelter from the non-Christian Roman people who prayed to their own gods. But here we were all Christians, although unfortunately divided, Catholic, Protestant. But there was a unity down here, surely. There had to be. Bombs up above, what else could they do but be together, be friends, befriend one another? And I'm sure that the people who took shelter down here could have had no idea of how great was the devastation and destruction that was going on up above. I'm sure when they went back to their homes between the raids, I'm sure there was terrible devastation, yes. I'm sure there must have been. Entire streets of houses were demolished 
and it's believed more people were killed in that one air raid on Belfast than in any other single attack outside London. Wartime censorship hid the enormous scale of the damage. Belfast was largely defenceless, partly because it was thought to be beyond the range of German bombers. But it was a prime target, with more than 50,000 workers producing warships, aircraft and munitions. The City Fire Brigade had only about 75 men facing at least 150 major fires, along with the problems of fractured gas mains and water pipes. Harry Welsh is a former fireman and author of The Flaming Truth, the history of Belfast Fire Brigade. He says they were completely overwhelmed. Belfast Fire Brigade actually is one of the better equipped, believe it or not, and they had seven normal-sized fire engines and a turntable ladder, which was, was quite good equipment for those days, and the equipment they had was very modern, so it was very able to deal with ordinary fires. And how many engines would normally have been sent to a normal peacetime big fire? Well, if it was a big mill or something like that, they would probably have sent most of the fire brigade, you know, seven fire engines, but you would need that to deal with a big fire like that. So here in the middle of the Blitz, you had many more huge fires. There was absolutely no way they were going to be able to deal with that. It was just outside the consciousness of, of any any big city fire brigade at that time. So it came as no surprise then that they had to seek help. Well, absolutely. Even seeking help would have been something that Belfast Fire Brigade wouldn't have been used to. Normally it was the other way around. It was other towns and villages and so on which didn't have a fire brigade who were coming to them for help if there was a fire. So on this occasion, they were the ones who needed all the help they could get. Was the arrival of the firemen from the south seen as significant in the years after the war? Well, it was, although I think myself... I mean, it wasn't just the firemen from the south. There was another group came from Scotland and two more groups came from England. But all that seems to have got lost in the, in the in the sort of collective consciousness of everybody around at the time. But I think it's important that we remember whenever our backs were to the wall that the, these people actually came to help us out. And their presence was very important? Oh, very much so. Really, in a circumstance like that, you needed all the help you could get. And the fact that, um, I suppose particularly with the firemen from the south who who were neutral in effect. Um, they were travelling into a war zone to help us out here, so it was you know, it was much more of a leap for them than it was perhaps from uh, firefighters from other parts of the UK. Allowing southern firemen to enter that war zone was a major decision for the Taoiseach, Eamon de Valera. He was worried that Germany might invade Ireland. That's what happened the previous year in other neutral countries, including Norway, Belgium and the Netherlands. Good morning. I'm Paddy O'Flaherty and I'm here to meet Tom Geraghty and Laz Fallon. Good morning, Paddy. Yeah, uh, would you sign in for me there, please? Right. They're expecting you. If you want to take a seat, then uh, I'll let them know you're here. Thank you very much. I'm in Dublin Fire Brigade's headquarters in Tara Street in the heart of Dublin and I'm really looking forward to meeting Tom and Laz. Tom is the author of The History of the Dublin Fire Brigade. Laz is a serving fireman and curator of the Dublin Fire Brigade Museum and I know they'll be able to give me a lot of important information about the southern response to the Belfast Blitz. Hello, Laz. Yeah, Paddy is here to see you now. You want to come down to reception. OK. Right, straight, cheers. Be with you now in a couple of minutes. Thank you. Right, straight. How's it going? Come on. Um, so, just... 
Are you Paddy? I am, yes indeed. Oh, yeah. Tom Garrity. Tom, good to meet you. Laz Fallon, nice to meet you, Paddy. Laz, great Laz, to meet you. Welcome to the headquarters station. Thank you very much. In the 1940-41, at the time of the, uh, the Belfast Blitz, there would have been approximately between 50 and 60 firemen in the station. Now we've come out into an open yard. What was this area? Well, this was the old drill yard, and uh, when the call was received, the message was sent out to the four outlines uh, district stations for the crews to come in, in here into the yard. They got uh, assembled here in the yard, and Major Comfort, the chief of the fire service at that, on that occasion, he spoke to them and told them that, that he had been instructed by the city manager on behalf of Mr de Valera, the Prime Minister at the time on Taoiseach, that there had been a major bombing on the city of Belfast and that there were huge loss of life, a lot of destruction of buildings, and they had sought our assistance. And uh, he requested that the firemen would make themselves available for to travel to Belfast to assist the Belfast Fire Brigade and the Northern Ireland Fire Brigades. He explained to them that it was outside of their remit of their employment, which they were employed only to fight fires within the greater Dublin area. But he was looking for, in the traditions of the brigade, that they would put that aside and that they would make themselves available. And volunteer And they would be volunteered, yeah. That there would be no compulsion for anybody to travel north. Uh, it would be purely volunteers. And as we know, that's exactly what they did. That's correct. So a selection was made, a mixture of seasoned firefighters and uh, younger firefighters. And amongst the younger ones, the emphasis was on those who weren't married. So once the decision was made, whatever the dangers, there was no turning back? None whatsoever. You worked with quite a few of the men yeah, who more went than, up more, more than 20 after, them, after yeah. the Blitz. Were they glad they went? Yes, they were all. They all were very proud of the fact that they had done it. That they were part of now of the history of the country. They certainly were going to be part. Were part and parcel of the history of the fire service. It was a major, significant, from a whole lot of reasons, from political reasons, from humanitarian, and uh, they were all very, very proud of the fact that they had made that decision and had gone up there in spite of the, the worries and fears that they had at the time. There's a beautiful old building on the Malahide Road in North Dublin that used to be a boarding school. This was the O'Brien Institute. It's now the Fire Brigade's training centre, and Laz Fallon has brought me here to visit the Brigade's Museum. Well, we've quite a bit of stuff relating to the events of the Belfast Blitz and the emergency, as it would have been known in this part of the world. The museum, I take it because the door's locked, is not open all the time? No, I look after it on a voluntary basis. I'm an operational firefighter, so I try to fit it in around, around my duties. Yes, yeah. Wow, what a collection. This is astonishing. Well, this particular area where we're in now was the chapel of the old the O'Brien Institute. We converted it, or the brigade converted it some years back, into a museum space, and I think it works quite well as a museum space. I'm going to draw your attention to these over here, Paddy. We have some paperwork here which relates directly to the, the events that we're talking about. What is this book? This is the accordance book of the Dunleary Fire Brigade. At the time, Dunleary would have been a separate brigade to Dublin. They were amalgamated some years back now. At the time, they were a separate brigade. This is their logbook. This records the comings and goings of the station. And immediately, Belfast, Absolutely. the name Belfast, jumps out at me here. Absolutely. For the 16th of April... That's right. 1941. And this was the, the turnout from Dunleary. Belfast City Corporation 
was the owner or occupier. That's right. <laughs> what, are, what are these little numbers? Those are the badge numbers of the men who went. Like policemen or soldiers, every fireman would so have that's his, the own, record his own of number. The men. That's the record of the men who went. Below that, then, I see the 5th of May, Belfast again. That's right. Of course, people, people forget about the, that there was actually two very, very heavy raids at Belfast. They were back up again. They were, yeah, they were back again on the 5th. And each of these entries is listed as result of air raid on city. That's right. Well, those, yeah. That's the Dunleary record. What about the Dublin Brigade? Well, we have the Dublin Brigade records of the period here, and I'll just show them to you, and you'll see that there's a major gap. And this is the official book. There are no missing pages. This is the Brigade Order book, which was the Bible. The Brigade ran by this. Every event of note that happened within the Brigade was recorded here. And yeah, this page is December... December 1940. And what is that showing? Oh, this one is to do with the issue of drill books and the, the regulations for drill practices within the stations. The 31st of December, 1940. 31st of December. The and next event of note mentioned in here. You just turned over the page there. I just turned the page and we're straight to the 5th of June, 41. It's a special order and thanks from the chief for the men's work at the bombing incidents in the North Strand, which was the... In Dublin? In Dublin, yeah. But no reference to Belfast? No reference to Belfast whatsoever. <laughs> and I have found no reference to the Belfast, to the men going to Belfast, in any official records of the brigade. As far as the brigade was concerned, there's no paperwork. As far as the brigade records were yeah, concerned... absolutely. Belfast didn't happen? Uh, oh, it very much happened, but they didn't write <laughs> the, about it. They didn't write that? about it. Why did they not I don't know. I, I think my own theory is that they were afraid of repercussions in the event of men being injured or killed, that regulations might have had to be rewritten afterwards to take account if there were legal problems in relation with that. There are some records of what happened that night. There's a significant document in the Dublin City Archives in Pierce Street. It's a memo handwritten by the Dublin City Manager, PJ Hernan. He says Stormont requested urgent assistance at ten past five in the morning. The Taoiseach gave the go-ahead 40 minutes later and by half-past six, the volunteer crews were on their way. My name is Eamon O'Keeve. My grandfather was Eamon of Lera, who was Taoiseach during the war and the issue of sending the fire brigades to Belfast during the Blitz, the decision fell to him. And it was a big decision because potentially the Germans could have taken the view that it was a violation of a neutrality but my understanding of it from my mother was that he took the decision very, very quickly and that he knew the risk, he had weighed up the risk and decided very, very quickly that here were people on the Isle of Ireland, Irish people who needed support, who needed help at that particular moment and that there was no way could he or should he refuse and that he should take the risk and authorise that the fire engines would go to Belfast. So he was conscious that it was a gamble. Oh, he was very, very conscious that it was a gamble. But lots of things he did in the way he handled neutrality were a gamble. And I think it's fair to say that when you look at the way he handled neutrality throughout the war, he he was very much benign to the Allied side. Uh, He was quite actually helpful to them in many, many ways. I've discovered that the full list of the names of the men who went from Dunleary, Dublin, Drogheda and Dundalk doesn't exist. Nobody knows who all of those men were. Do you find that surprising? Not really, because I think the best thing was just to go and do the thing. 
and not to make a big issue about it, that would minimise the risk in terms of anybody arguing that there had been a great pre-planned break of neutrality. Here was an on the spur of the moment humanitarian gesture, and I, I'm sure that part of the reason was to mollify any question that the Germans might raise about it. Therefore, to do the bold thing, but to minimise the risk, and that would have been certainly very much in his thinking. Should it be more of a big issue today? Should there be more done by way of recognising those men who went to Belfast? Uh, I think it would be a very good North-South project in terms of the recipients and the beneficiaries. What would be a lovely project would be now, on a North-South basis, to honour the men, and I understand there was men that went north, who took the brave decision to volunteer when they were asked to go north and that there would be a joint commemoration of those people in both north and south. What sort of commemoration do you think might be proper? Well, I think the first thing would be to try to seek out the families of the people who participated in the event, see could you get together people who benefited from the fact that the fire engines went north and maybe there should be a permanent memorial either in the south somewhere or in the north or maybe at the Battle of the Bind site commemorating what was, in a difficult time, one of the, I think, important North-South gestures. So you'd be pleased to see some sort of permanent memorial to those firemen? Oh, oh, absolutely. I know nobody died, thanks be to God, in in the work they did, but they were not to know that at the time. And they volunteered and took the risk. They went and made this great gesture. And again, I think that they were very courageous in what they did. I'm travelling home to Belfast and I've one very important stop to make on the way. Have your attention, passengers, please. Uh, we'll very shortly be arriving into Dundalk. Those passengers leaving the train here at Dundalk, would you please ensure you have all your personal belongings and baggage with you? Thank you. Those courageous men, as Eamon O'Queeve described them, included both the full-time firemen and the members of the Auxiliary Fire Service. Bernard Deveni's father, Dan Deveni, was one of the Auxiliary Firemen who answered the call for volunteers. He originally had come from Belfast, he lived in the Antrim Road in Belfast, had come down to Dundalk to work in 1937. So on the morning of the, after the Blitz, they were all called up to Belfast. Uh, ten of them travelled by car. They then had to report to Chichester Street, the headquarters of the fire station. They got their breakfast in the Ulster Hall and then they were directed to Ballymore Street in the old Park Road area of Belfast. And he saw terrible sights there, houses and people, a lot of people killed and the police and the soldiers were all digging bodies out. It was a very densely populated area and in that particular street all the houses on both sides were flattened. What street was that? Ballymore Street, just off the old Park Road. Nothing left standing. Nothing left, and uh, you remember he talked about an old man coming down looking for his house. He, he, he mentioned the number, whatever the number of the house was, and he couldn't find it, and he was totally gone. Came into another house, uh, or remains of a house, there was a lady and three children, all dead. They were there the whole day anyway, and eventually they were they reported back to the... I remember mentioning this was... He went back to a hotel called the Eglinton Hotel for they were told to get their meal there. There was a meal waiting for them. And when they got to the hotel, they wouldn't let them in because with all the clothes, dirty clothes and that, the man wouldn't <laughs> let them in. So they eventually had to go back to the, the, the dock. They weren't allowed to stay that night. And they had to get away before darkness came down. And they stopped in a pub in Lisbon called Tom Brown's Pub in Lisbon. 
and they had pints of Guinness and some nice ham sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember them telling us, that's what I, that's what I can so remember. So it was a pleasant end to a terrible day. It was a terrible day. I've got this old photograph here of the Merryweather and some of the firemen, including my grandfather. Do you know many of these men yourself? Yeah, well, when, we were, when I was a child, I was at school in the Christian Brothers in Dundalk here, right beside the fire station. And uh, we used to see them from time to time. We'd pass up past the Defenders Row fire station, go up on the way to get the bus to Blackrock where we lived. And oh, yeah, I sure used to see them, and be, sometimes you'd be lucky enough to be a call out on the, the, the heading them off and the, the bell, bell ringing. And, yes, and great Did excitement. you know these men yourself? I w- knew a couple of them to say hello to, but I wouldn't have known them by name. Well, I'm going over now to see my Aunt Bridie, and hopefully she'll be able to fill me in with yeah. some of these names. Yeah, well, they're all they're very, very dedicated people, I know that, and even though their resources were meagre in those days, they were very dedicated to their job. Paddy, you're Friday, how are you? You're welcome. Good to see you again. Yeah, and to see you too. And you're looking fit and well. Not too bad. Still here, taking goals. And this is Maura. Uh, Maura's Laura. here as well. Hello, yeah, Maura. Daddy, how are you? Maura is my cousin. Good to see you again, Maura. <laughs> and Bridie now is my late mother's younger sister. You're 91 now, Brady, isn't yes, that right? that's right. The last surviving member of this old family. I've brought along a very famous photograph. Mm. You've seen this photograph before, yes, haven't you? Yes, I have, yeah. And it's a photograph of the old fire engine yeah, and a first, lot of men on it. The first fire brigade, yeah. In Dundalk. Yeah. And Granda's there. Yes. Along with about eight other men. Can you remember any of them? Yes. Eddie Norton driving it. Mr. Kenny, the engineer beside him, Mr. McEnany, the caretaker town hall, the other side, and my father, Pat Rooney, behind, and young Keelan from over the bridge, and Mickey Murphy at the back. And then over on the other side, there are three more men. Yeah. Saucy Clark. Saucy Clark. Yeah. That Tom- was his nickname. And Tommy Brannigan. And I think that was John Carl. I feel that's who he was. You know, he was a good-looking man long ago. I'm just looking at him there with the beard. That could have been him. <laughs> he was one of the firemen anyway, you know. No, Bridie, your memory is absolutely great. I, I don't think it is, no. You were able to remember all of those names, Bridie. I, I know that. Just when I looked at their faces, it brought them all their names back to me, you know, again. You know. So was it Granda who drove the engine to yeah. Belfast yeah. on the night of the Blitz? On the night of the Blitz, yeah. He would have driven it. He was driving that time, yeah. He was the first man that drove the Merryweather when it came to Dundalk. Him and Eddie Norton, and that's how Eddie was driving it there on that occasion. They used to share the driving. Sometimes my father would drive it, and sometimes Eddie Norton would drive it. That was a terrible night, obviously, when they went to Belfast. My father said it was the worst night they ever witnessed. He said it was terrible. The pieces of bodies were lying everywhere. He said and they had to go through them all, you know, out and out the fires. Terrible night. Maura, did Grenda talk much to you about that occasion? He would often talk about being on the fire engine and what they'd done and different fires they were at. And he did say what Bridie said, that it was an awful night at the Blitz, that it was terrible. But they, they'd done all they could to help. You know, there was no divide when you were talking about bodies. You just went and done what you had to do. It must have been terrible. must have been an awful night. The journey itself must have been oh, it pretty must have, ghastly. Oh, because it's an open fire engine. 
And I mean, there's no cover on it. So they would have been frozen by the time they got there. You know, and then they had to start and look for water and do whatever they could. And you can imagine all the buildings were down. There was people everywhere. So it must have been terrible. I would have heard them talking to my mother about it, you know. I was young at the time. And, uh, he said he was sick after it, you know. He couldn't forget it. I'm looking at another copy of that famous photograph. This time it's hanging proudly on the wall of the crew room in Dundalk Fire Station. Former fireman Jim Curley has been showing me around. A great photograph. Oh, well, one we're very proud of to have displayed here on the station. You'll understand <laughs> this is a very exciting occasion for me because I know that I can now go and see the old Merriweather fire engine. Exactly. Come on this way and we'll see it now. Remind me when it was bought again. It was came into Dundalk at the end of 1932, the last day of 1932. We're just heading out of the crew room into the station yard here. Right. And how we were how d- much did the engine cost at that time? Uh, over 2000 2022 pounds the total cost uh, exactly which in today's <laughs> terms uh, <laughs> probably was uh, an awful lot of money at the time listen jim it was very well worth it there it is and what a magnificent sight it is a very it fine is machine it is a spectacular machine Yes, and gleaming in the sunshine there with the brass, we had basically to strip it back completely to the chassis, sandblast the chassis from there on up. There's so much brass, including, of course, the big brass bell. bell. Can we hear the bell? No problem at all. Wow, that's some sound. They'd know you were coming when they heard that. Most certainly. You didn't need two tones in those days. A bell was quite sufficient. And (laughs) this is the original machine. Yes, Paddy, this is the actual machine that your grandfather drove to Belfast on the night of the Blitz. But it's still in running order. Oh, yes. Yes, you will hear it now. Michael's going to start it up for you now. This is our mechanic. Michael Daw, our mechanic, is going to start it up for you now. Michael, will you tell me a little bit about what's involved in starting the Merryweather? Well, I suppose there's a bit of a knack. As you can see here, the winding handle here at the front of the vehicle, it's very, very close to the front shackles of the spring. There's no electronic ignition? No, 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 it's all, (laughs) no battery in it. It's all done by a wee magneto underneath the engine, and which is driven once you get the engine going. So this is the original starting handle as well? Starting handle, and as you can see, it's very, very close to the front shackles of the spring, so many a man has lost a knuckle. (laughs) Show me your knuckles. Well, at the start, when I came here in 98, I started learning how to swing this machine, and I will crack my knuckles a few times, but you learn as you go along to keep the knuckles. Show me how it works. Okay. What happened to you now? This is the starting handle. So you have to push it in. It's spring-loaded, of course, because once it starts then, that'll push your spring out because your wine handle won't keep going on once the engine gets cranking. So I recommend just about 3 o'clock. So you push the handle in, keep it pushing it, and then start whining. <laughs> and keep the knuckles well clear. Okay, that's that's once. That's <laughs> once. Hear it just the way your grandfather did. <laughs> and that's the Merryweather up and running. <laughs> up and running. Belfast next stop. <laughs> Can we climb aboard? Most certainly. It's amazing to find myself sitting up here in the front seat of the Merryweather where my grandfather sat 70 years ago. And of course, the firemen, they were all exposed to the elements, Jim. Exactly. They were sitting here on the side hanging on for dear life, if you like. And you know, sitting here now. I'm thinking that those men weren't thinking about 
big issues like neutrality and cross-border cooperation. They were firemen. They knew somebody needed help. They were doing what firemen always have done. Exactly. Firemen throughout the world always believe in a big family, and they knew family needed help in Belfast. So Belfast firemen needed help. The dog firemen were on the way. And Michael, I believe the Merriweather controls are reversed to the controls on a modern vehicle. That's correct. The pedals here on the floor is completely different. Well, the clutch is the same. On the left-hand side, we have the clutch. On the right-hand side, we have the brake pedal. But in the middle is we have the accelerator. <laughs> and, and the, the gears are a bit funny as well. Well, they are a wee bit funny as well. It's an old-type crash-type gearbox. Nowadays, it's all single mesh. But it just takes a wee knack to get used to the gears. But and you have the it. knack. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Give it a try. Okay. Watch it for Paddy, sir. There you are, we have one gear in there now. That was an exciting sound, and <laughs> we're moving. We're moving, are you ready to go? Yes. Away we go. And we're off. And we're off, Paddy. <laughs> Do you think she would make Belfast again? Make it no problem whatsoever. The only thing is, I would like to start putting fuel in it. It costs you a lot of money. <laughs> we may never know how many firemen travelled north to Belfast, probably more than a hundred. But what is certain is that 70 years ago, those men reached out to help thousands of families in a way that changed their lives and in a way that will always be remembered.